You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, it's Father's Day, as we already know. So happy Father's Day to all of you dads out there. You know, being a dad is one of the most enjoyable things in my life. I have a couple of mine right over here. I had some of them here down the front row in the first service. I love being a dad. And while I'm not speaking specifically about fathers this morning, I do recognize that uh, a day like today is uniquely focused on the men here at Ascend Church. And so I'd like to ask you, what does it mean to be a man? I mean, what is the first adjective that crosses your mind when you think about that question? I imagine for many of us, words like strong or confident or tough or grit are the things that come to mind, right? But I'm safe in assuming, I believe, that none of us thought, by way of a first thought, that a man is emotional. I mean, if you're a man and you're invited to a men's gathering to talk about love, would that excite you? I mean, I'm a man, we have other men here. Are you with me on this? I don't know about you, but I don't want to get together with a bunch of guys and talk about love. That doesn't sound exciting. Who wants to spend their Saturday morning doing that? We'd rather a barbecue, right? Can I get it? All right, good. Let Let me ask you, how do you suppose most people view love? I mean, think about how we talk about it. Boy meets girl, right? They make each other feel nice. They fall in love. Maybe they get married. Things are going great for a while, and then life happens, right? And over time, they begin to to drift apart. And what happens? They fall out of love. You see, love, as many see it, and sadly, even many Christians, is nothing more than something we feel, something that happens to you, like other emotions. And like other emotions, it's sort of involuntary. It's just an emotional response to the things and to the people around us. And I tried to think about my own relationships in preparing this message. And I have to admit that in almost every relationship that is a part of my life, there is something I get out of it. There's a benefit there for me. There's something they do for me. Even in the relationships I would say I love the most, my wife, my children, my family members, my church friends. It's quite easy to have warm, affectionate, loving feelings toward those because, after all, they treat me nice, right? I think it's interesting as we come to John chapter 13 this morning and look at the text before us to consider how we typically view the phrase that we will find there, love one another. It's interesting to stop and to think through our own reactions to that phrase, love one another. When you hear that, when I hear that, I I realize that generally I just place that command, as we often say here, into the background of white noise. It's something that we hear so often that it just begins to lose impact for me. But as I drill down on that more and more, I see a couple of disturbing realities that that are present in my life, and I think they might be present in your lives as well. I can honestly say, as I survey all of my relationships, and I think about the pattern of my life in terms of my emotional position, my emotional posture or, or um, uh, you know, attitude toward the people in my life, 
that as I think about all of those relationships, they are truly characterized by warm, affectionate, loving feelings. It's true. For me, there's a pattern of love in my life, but we got to dig a little deeper. I've also come to realize, we have to pay attention here, I've come to realize that I only think that love is a pattern in my life because, or that I'm doing well in this area of loving one another. I only think that because I've been quite selective in who has a part in my life. I don't know if that rings true for you. I've been selective because I surround myself with people who give back to me, to the exclusion, possibly, of others who don't or won't. And in all honesty, as I think about this deeper, there are likely people who I avoid, people who I don't necessarily click with, people who I don't pursue. I don't know if that's true about you. It could look like for us in our church body, seeing faces every single week as we gather together and never knowing who they are, never pursuing them, never even wanting to. You hang with the ones you like and who give you something back in return. This happens, doesn't it? Doesn't this happen? We all do it. But you see, Jesus in our text this morning is calling us to a concept of love that is much deeper, much more distinct. And my prayer for us this morning is that we won't go into this message thinking that we have this command down pat. That this message is something that should just remain in the background. In John chapter 13, verse 34, we find Jesus conducting his own men's meeting. And the topic, ironically, is love. It's love. And at this men's meeting, Jesus, who is the manliest man there ever was, is driving home a big idea he wants his disciples to get, and he wants each of us here to grab hold on to, and that is this. The defining mark of a disciple is a practical love that is patterned after and empowered by God's forever settled love over him and Jesus Christ. Jesus wants each of us here this morning to realize that we need to demonstrate that we are his followers through the practice of his love. And that love must be patterned after him and it must be empowered by our connection to him so that we might leave our mark of love on this world. Let's read our passage together and then seek together God's help through his Holy Spirit to understand the significance of this text as well as to humbly and fully embrace whatever specifically he's asking of you and me to respond with. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. These are the words of our Lord Jesus. He says to these men, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let's just set up this passage just a little bit. One of the first things that ought to strike us as we approach this text is the reality that Jesus is issuing a command here. He's exercising authority over these men. You see that? We, we cannot overlook the reality that as followers of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is Jesus' audience here, he's speaking to the 11 men that remained after Judas Iscariot rose from the supper table during the Passover meal to go betray their Lord. 
And these men that remained, they had surrendered their wills to the Lord Jesus. They had surrendered their lives to following him. They were his followers. He was their master. He was their rabbi. He was their teacher. He was in charge. And that, in essence, is what it means to be a disciple. That Jesus is in charge of me. And if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus here this morning, one who has turned from the darkness to the light, one who has turned from the power of Satan over your life to the power of God over your life, the Scriptures call that repentance. And by faith alone in the finished and perfect work of Jesus Christ, where He as your sin-bearer hung and died and bled in your place while the anger of the Father toward your sin and toward your rebellion was poured out on him, if you have confessed that this Jesus is your Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, the Bible declares that you now are under new ownership. Your life is not your own. It's Christ's. And he has authority over you. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says to them, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And as believers, when Jesus commands, what do we do? We obey. Come on, guys, wake up. When he commands, we obey. Why am I emphasizing this today? It's because in our culture... Submission, dependency, humility, obedience. These are not considered good traits any longer. Even among Christians, generally, the whole concept of obedience has begun to feel outdated. It's begun to feel institutional. It's not progressive enough. In fact, to consider Jesus as your master, whom you must obey to some, feels quite oppressive. You know, when Mindy and I uh, were visiting some of our missionary friends in Sweden a few years back, we discovered, they told us that in the school system there, they have these sofa lounges set up in the schools. And these sofa lounges are safe spaces for the students. Whenever a student feels overwhelmed or stressed, they're free to get up no matter what's happening to go to their safe space and just relax. And I'm thinking, man, had I been raised as a student in Sweden... I'd be going to my safe space all the time, especially when my teacher was about to overwhelm or stress me with lots of homework. That's how we treat Jesus today, isn't it? Very few in many churches speak of Jesus as master, as Lord, as authority, the one whom we must obey. We want to do things because we want to do them. We don't want to be told what to do. We want a Jesus that's like us, One that doesn't demand too much of us. Who doesn't ask us to do the hard things. But I don't know about you. I'm really glad that he is not like me. And I'm super glad he's not like you. If that were true, we'd be in a lot of trouble. It's interesting if you note with me in the preceding context. Judas has just departed. He just left to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And to set in motion the traitorous events that would lead toward his crucifixion. So here we have an event that that within hours, the hours to follow, Jesus would be subjected to unthinkable pain, unthinkable torture and ridicule. He would be beaten. He would be flogged. Essentially, his back would be shredded like pulled pork as a Roman soldier whips him over and over with that cat of nine tails. 
They would then thrust a crown of thorns through his skin into his skull and violently rip his beard from his face so that he, like the prophet Isaiah foretells, would be beaten so badly he'd be hardly recognizable as a man. And then you add to it the fact that our sin, our shame, our rebellion would be laid upon him, the perfect, sinless, holy Son of God. And all of that was about to happen. Judas had set those events in motion. And Jesus, knowing all of this, now turns to these 11 friends who remain. And he says, rather surprisingly to them, in verse 31, take a look there. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Those words, they have a triumphant ring to them, don't they? See, he's not running from pain. He's not fleeing from what lies ahead. He's facing it head on. Jesus is the manliest man in history. And who, when he's faced with unspeakable horror and suffering and pain and shame, what does he do? He willingly and courageously mans up as only the Son of Man could do. And he triumphantly leans into what's coming next with an almost incomprehensible anticipation and excitement. It's as if to say, now that Judas has set this all in motion, Jesus is turning to this, these men and he's saying, it's time. It's finally time. Let's get it on. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. It's time, he's saying, for the world to know me for who I am and to see my love. He was excited to make his mark of love. Romans 5.8 tells us this where Paul writes to the Roman church, but God shows or God demonstrates or God has left his mark of love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We need a good and steady uh, dose of seeing Jesus in unfiltered and unveiled glory. When that happens, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what you will do. We will bow in worship And we, along with every other blood-bought believer, will, as a people of God, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is in charge. And so submission and humility and dependency and obedience, these become the qualities that describe our lives as his followers. We belong to him. So here, speaking to these 11 men, as they gather only hours before Jesus would courageously and sacrificially drink the cup of suffering for our sins, he once again exercises authority over them, and he gives them a command. And he expects obedience to this command from every one of them and from every one of you and me. He expects us to make our mark of love. And so he says to them in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, as I've already said, we have a command here. A command to love. It's a command to love. Doesn't that ring us just a little odd to you? How can you command love? How can you, I mean, it sounds like an oxymoron, right? A, A contradiction in terms. How can you make someone else love someone? Not even Aladdin's genie could pull that one off. But here Jesus 
He's not speaking of some fluffy feeling. He's not speaking of an emotional, an involuntary emotional response, something that just happens to you. We don't fall in or fall out of this kind of love. No, this is a love that is chosen. It's a love that is chosen. In the original, the word is agape. And this agape love can be difficult to define. It's probably better described by what it does. But I'm going to give you a simple definition I appreciate. This agape love, this biblical love that Jesus is commanding is a determined act of the will. It's a choice. It's a determined act of the will, a joyful resolve to put the welfare of another above your own. You see, Jesus is not commanding a feeling. He's commanding us to resolve to put the good of others above our own. And that's the setup here. And and now we want to focus on three components that we see to this command that will, I think, ensure that we make our mark of love. All three of these components help us to understand the newness of what he's saying. This is not the first time, by the way, you see loving one another in scriptures. Certainly wasn't the first time these disciples had been told to love one another, but it is distinctly new. And these three components, I think, will help us to grasp that newness. The first component I want us to see is the power of love. We need to connect to the power of love. And as we read our text, we understand that these words that Jesus is speaking to these men is in the context of a relationship that had been established with them through their faith in him. In fact, that same night in the same men's meeting, as he continues this men's meeting, he repeats his command to them in John chapter 15. Would you turn over to John 15 verse 12? Look at what Jesus says to them there. Almost identical. Jesus repeats, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. But, but this time, as he repeats it, this command came in the context of connecting to the power of his love. Look back just a few verses in John chapter 15, verse 9. There Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Do you see that right there? The Father has loved me. Jesus is a recipient. He's receiving the Father's love. He's connected to that Father's love. And out of that love, he's loving them. And so he goes on. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus, he's preparing these men for his departure, and he wants them to be empowered to carry out his will in his absence. Just that he had been empowered to carry out the Father's will. Where did the power that Jesus had, where was the power of Jesus' obedience from? He tells us right in our text. He says it came from abiding, from abiding in the Father's love. He's speaking of the powerful connection of love that empowered his earthly ministry. Jesus, as the God-man, he lived in perfect union with his Father, constantly connected to him. Constantly receiving the Father's love. And then he loved you and me out of that love for him. And so in the same way, Jesus is telling us as his followers, I have high expectations of each of you. I'm commanding you to love. And don't worry, you'll do just fine so long as you remain connected to me. We need to connect to the power of his love. How do we do that? Well, Jesus calls it abiding, doesn't he? We connect to the power of love through abiding. Look at John chapter 15, verse 5. 
There Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. What is he speaking of there? He's speaking of connection, isn't he? He's speaking of being connected to one another. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, he's telling them, listen, you cannot love one another as I've commanded you if you don't abide in my love, just as I'm abiding in the Father's love. This power to fulfill this command depends on that connection. So what does abiding look like? Well, last fall, I finally upgraded my phone. I got the iPhone 12 Pro. Before that, I had the iPhone 7, so it was time for an upgrade. But one of the things, you probably already know this because this was new to me, but it has the glass back, right? And what that means is they have the system where you have a charging base that's always powered on, and all you got to do to charge your phone is to lay your phone on the charging base. No wires, no hassles. It's pretty much idiot-proof. Just put your phone on this charger base. It's always powered on, and it will never fail. In the very same way, abiding is about resting, isn't it? Resting on his love, on his love that has been forever settled over you. You hear those words? Forever settled. It's a finished work. It's a perfect work. We just need to rest on that love. I like to think of it this way. Does Jesus love me? Yes. Okay, thank you. How do I know? Good job. The Bible tells me so. You're better than the first service. He does tell us so, doesn't he? In fact, he's telling his disciples so in chapter 15, verse 13. Look there. Jesus tells these 11 men, greater love has no man than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And then he looks at them and he says, you are my friends. What is he doing there? He's hinting to them that he's about to make his mark of love for them. He's about to lay down his life for them and show them the greatest love Yeah, but what does it mean to abide in love, you might ask? Well, one of my favorite verses, and if you know me, you know this is my favorite verse, is Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says this, He, that is God, the Father, who did not spare his own Son, that's our Lord Jesus, he who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And I love that. The rest of Romans chapter 8, if you continue to read in that chapter, goes on to tell us that there is absolutely nothing that can be done to disconnect you from the power of his love. You cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is a truth we need to rest on. What is the practical implication of that verse in my life? It means that I can have a supreme confidence that Jesus Christ will always meet all of my needs. And you can too. He will never withhold any good thing from you. Anything that is for your good, He will graciously give it to you. And that confidence and that trust in His forever settled love over you frees you and it empowers you to humbly meet the needs of others, doesn't it? My needs are met. Your needs are met in Jesus. And we're resting on that reality. And so now we can give unconditionally. We can serve unselfishly. We can bless without limits. Moment by moment, hour by hour, abiding means resting on that reality. 
It's reminding myself in the morning as we sung, reminding myself in the evening that God's love over me has forever been settled. Amen? This command Jesus gives to his disciples is new. Why? Because it requires you to be connected to that power of love. The second component that makes this a new command is seen in John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus already said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. But the next phrase gives us the second component. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so Jesus is saying to them, listen, guys, a servant is not greater than his master. I am courageously loving you. And you need to man up. And you need to follow my lead. You need to follow my pattern of love. I'm leaving you, and my love for you now is the new standard. You need to follow that love. Connect to my love and follow my pattern. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus and his disciples were gathered together for supper just before the Jewish Passover as the evening meal was being served. Uh, Jesus silently at some point rises from the the supper table, and and he performs an act that uh, left his disciples utterly speechless. He assumes the role of the lowliest servant, doesn't he? Look at John, uh, how John describes it in verse 4 of chapter 13. He writes, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now it's interesting to note that in Luke's gospel there's a detail that John doesn't point us to. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 22, verse 24, we realize that during this very same meal, a dispute arose among the disciples. Now, I, I lived in Italy, and so I'm used to loud meals, as you can probably picture in some of the movies you've seen. Well, this was not a fun event. This was a group of men, Luke says, disputing over which of them was regarded as the greatest. Not a very loving display, but you can picture it, can't you? The arguing and the back and forth arguing over office and rank. And these voices are beginning to rise and it's getting loud and it's starting to feel a little heated inside this room. And with all that chaos going on, they initially failed to notice what Jesus had begun to do. At least that's how I picture it. He slips away unnoticed. He backs away from the table, gets up, goes, gets the things he needs. He's about to shock their world. And he takes upon him this task that is reserved for only the lowliest of servants, the ones that are on the bottom rung. And as Jesus kneels down on the floor to wash that first disciple's feet, that disciple, that one, probably didn't even give him any notice. He probably didn't even look at him. In fact, he was, these servants were largely disregarded. He was probably too engrossed in his argument, too engrossed with his own delusions of grandeur. Of course, we really don't know if that's how it went down, but if I were directing a scene in The Chosen, that's probably what I would do. I imagine that somewhere along the line, one of these men may have finally realized who it was that was performing this task. And quickly, a great silence begins to fall on the room, right? All the arguing ceases, and the only thing that's left is awe and embarrassment. And as that sets in, the only sound, can you imagine the scene? Utter quiet. And the only sound that is heard 
are the sounds of the drops, the drip, drip, drip of the water and the mud as he continues his task and then shuffles to the next pair of feet. Amazing scene. Can you imagine? John 13, verse 12, tells us when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? When Jesus told them to love each other just as I have loved you in John 13, 34, I think he was clearly pointing back to this event that just took place, this humble act of service that he had just demonstrated, don't you? He's the Lord. He's their teacher. He's their rabbi. He's their master. But he didn't think twice about doing the dirty job. And he didn't complain about it either. Philippians chapter 2 tells us in verse 7 that Jesus instead emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He was their master, and he is our God. And though he had no obligation toward them or toward us, his love for us was demonstrated in the laying aside of his rightful position in order to seek our good above his own. Look at verse 13 in chapter 13. Jesus continues, he tells them, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, we often call Jesus the servant leader, don't we? The servant king. But I think he wouldn't mind just simply be called at times the servant. That's how Mark described him when Jesus, in, in Jesus' own words, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How did Jesus love us? He served us. He served us. He who has the name which is above every name laid aside the prestige of that position. He laid aside his rank. He laid aside his honor and his glory, and he served his men. So the first pattern of love that Christ, of, of Christ that we are to follow is serving. It's serving one another. And that means that our love for one another must be practical, right? It cannot simply be sentimental or emotional. Love is what love does. You might want to write that one down and remember it. Love is what love does. And Jesus said in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know them, then obey. Do it. Show it. You see, love is essentially an action. Someone once said that love is forgetting of oneself in the service of another. To love means stepping out of our safe and comfortable spaces and entering into the life of another person, no matter how hard it may be to love them, and entering in that relationship seeking their highest good above our own. It's a choice to serve. But secondly, love is also a sacrifice. The second pattern of, love, of the love of Christ that we are to follow involves sacrifice. It is going to cost you something to love another person. It may be time, it may be money, it may be comfort, it may be reputation. Jesus, we know, was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. It may even cost you your very life. 
And at any time that we open ourselves up to loving one another, as Christ is commanding here, we must be ready to sacrifice something important to us. Sometimes we leave ourselves open to pain, to ridicule, to misunderstanding, to rejection when we love another person. And there's a good chance that our love for another person will not always be given back to us or appreciated. But listen, we cannot love another without giving ourselves, offering ourselves to the one we're serving. When you think about Jesus' love, you think about the tremendous sacrifice he made for us, don't you? It was an emotional sacrifice, a a physical sacrifice, but especially a spiritual sacrifice. Peter speaks of that in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, where he says, he himself, do you hear the words he's speaking? It's personal. He himself. What did Jesus do? He bore our sins in his own body. It was a personal sacrifice. That was love as he died on that tree. John summarized Jesus' love in verse 1 of chapter 13, where he writes, Jesus, if you look there in verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, John writes, he loved them to the end. And he's not just speaking about loving them until the last moment. He's more speaking about how Jesus went all the way in his love, how he crossed the finish line and accomplished his mission in his love. In his love for us, Jesus held nothing back. That's sacrifice. And that's the pattern that he's leaving for his men and for us. I work for a global missions agency. And we concentrate on planting churches worldwide. My role is to uh, oversee and shepherd and care for our personnel over in the continent of Europe and the United Kingdom. And so I interface mostly with church leaders and pastors and, and missionaries. And I have to tell you, before any of these people were missionaries or church leaders or church planters, they were and still are just people. They're people just like these men in our text who sometimes find it hard to serve, who sometimes don't want to sacrifice especially for the people who are difficult to love. That's why, and it should be obvious, Jesus is commanding it. Do you see that? This doesn't come natural to us. This desire to love in this way, to serve and to sacrifice as Jesus did, they're not born out of our own desires. This is not a natural love. This is a divine love that must be connected from its source. The power of love is Christ. He is the one, if he commands it, the encouragement for all of us here this morning as we're thinking about this is that if he commands it, he's also going to enable us to fulfill the expectations of that command. And I see church leaders, I see missionaries, I see pastors who sometimes in their humanity, in their human relationships, struggle to love others, even other believers in their ministries. But listen, human relationships, by the way, they can be filled with a lot of hurt, can't they? A lot of pain, a lot of disagreement, sometimes offense, struggle. And sometimes it can run very deep. But, but the phrase that accompanies this command, you see it, don't you? As I have loved you. What does that mean? Well, well that always leaves you and me, no matter what may have happened in a human relationship that we have. No matter what. It leaves us accountable to that standard, doesn't it? 
We're not talking about getting back that loving feeling. We're talking about obedience, submission, dependency, humility. All of these are responses to Christ's authority over us as our Lord and our Master. And these are the things that must, they must guide our own heart's responses. Don't look to your feelings to obey this command. Look to Christ as your authority and walk in obedience. You and I are accountable to this pattern. And there are no exceptions. And I know that as we think about this, maybe some of you right now, you're thinking about relationships in your life and, and the pain is deep. These relationships look bleak, right? Some of them seem to be completely beyond repair. But I wonder, are you connected to the power of his love through abiding? You see, that brings safety. That, that, that brings security. It's been said that hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. But see, the opposite is also true. Loved people love people. Are you abiding in the forever settled love of Christ for you today? If so, that connection to his love will enable you to obey his command and to begin following the pattern of love. But let me just exhort you gently, please, please do not convince yourselves here this morning that your situation and your damaged relationship is somehow different, that it is somehow unique, that somehow God forgot to take that into account when he was issuing this command to us. Please do not fall prey to that mindset. If that's where you are, it only reveals that you have not yet fully grasped the wickedness of your own sinful rebellion that Jesus had to overcome to love you. Romans 5.10 tells us this clearly, doesn't it? That Jesus loved us when? While we were still his enemies. So this new commandment, it requires, number one, that we connect to the power of his love, that we abide in the forever settled love of God for us in Christ. And number two, that we follow the pattern of love, that we follow a pattern of love that was set before us by the manliest man in history. But the third component of this new commandment has to do with how this practical love that is patterned after and empowered by the forever settled love of God for us in Christ is then going to accomplish something in the world. Look at what Jesus says again in John chapter 13, verse 35. He says to these men, by this, now what is the this referring to? It's referring to their obedience. Referring to an obedient love for one another. By obedience to my commandment that I just gave you, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So third, we need to display the proof of love. Display the proof of love. Now, I remember studying prisms in elementary school. Do you guys remember that? It was amazing. You, there's something just incredibly unique and unmistakable about a prism as, the, as that white light passes through a prism. You know, if I remember right, white light is the, all of the visible wavelengths of light that are coming at equal intensity. 
And so as this white light comes into this prism, what happens? It gets into that prism and it begins to be bent. It begins to be refracted so that those visible wavelengths begin to be spread out and a beautiful array of colors comes out on the other side. It comes out in something we all know as Roy G. Biff. Anybody remember Roy G. Biff? Red, orange, yellow, uh, green, blue, indigo, violet. Did I get that right? It's unmistakable. It's a distinct pattern. It's unique. We see it in a rainbow. We see it in a diamond. And in the same way, when the love of Christ passes through us as his followers, when you are connected to his love through abiding, and that powerful love that you are receiving and resting on passes through you into relationships in your life, especially in the relationships that are hard, guess what emerges as that love flows through your relationship? It's like the wavelengths of light being spread out, leaving Christ's unmistakable mark. It can't be missed. It's unique. And you see, there are a lot of people who think that certain rites or ceremonies or a particular form of dress or appearance or, or certain customs or traditions, that these are the things that distinguish Christians in the world. But I don't see Jesus mentioning any of that here, do you? The one thing that Jesus promises that will publicly display you and me as his followers is our love for one another. Our obedient love, a practical love. A love of service, a love of sacrifice, empowered by the forever love of God for you and me. That is what displays the proof, the evidence that we follow Jesus. I want you to listen to a few verses that we find in John's first epistle. Here, the same New Testament author, I think as we read these verses, it becomes apparent that he got the message, that this impacted him deeply. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. That's the source. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. There's proof that you are a follower when that love is present in your relationships. 1 John 3, 14. John writes, we know, we know, it's evident it's obvious. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. How about 1 John 3.10? John writes, by this it is evident, it's proven, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 4.8, anyone who does not lo love does not know God. Do you see the weightiness of this? Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And if you know God, you are connected to him. You're abiding in him. You're receiving his love. You can't help but let that love refract through your life. 1 John 2, 9 and 10. John writes, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. That's serious isn't it? This is a matter, like I said, not of loving feelings. It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of submission, of humility, of Christ's authority. But whoever loves his brother abides in the light, John says. I want you to listen to one more. In fact, you might want to turn there. John, 1 John chapter 3. 
1 John chapter 3, verse 23. Here, John, he's the same author again. He's pointing us right back to what he wrote in his gospel account. Look at verse 23 there. 1 John 3, 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many commandments do you see in this passage, in this verse? How many are there? There's only one. It's singular. This is his commandment. And what is his commandment? That we believe and that we love. I think John clearly saw that there, there was an inseparable link between believing in Christ and following this command to love one another. But even if you, if you let's listen, if you never publicly profess with your words, verbally, to someone else that you know Jesus, that you're a follower of Jesus, they'll never know that you are, will they? They won't really know that you're a follower of him. Our faith must be professed. It must be proclaimed. It must be preached. Scriptures tell us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so there need to be preachers of the gospel. You are called to publicly profess your faith that you follow the master. But even if you do profess publicly to be a follower of Christ, and many in our country do, your love for others, a practical love, patterned after, empowered by the forever settled love of Christ for you, that will bear the strongest evidence that your faith is real. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? As we think about this message that we've received this morning, one of my concerns is that We will simply walk away this morning just with more white noise. That some of us in this room will just head out these doors and we'll say, yeah, I got it. Love one another. I'm doing okay on that. Can I just gently nudge you here this morning with your heads bowed, your eyes closed? Can I just nudge you to go beyond that right now? You see, I believe that every single person here has a horizontal relationship that for them is difficult, that may be painful. And I believe Jesus has given us something that we need to do something about. There are people that are hard to love. You might say, man, Ken, you don't know my situation. This person has hurt me so bad. They don't deserve my love. And it might be surprising to you that I probably agree with you. You're probably right. They don't deserve it. But let me tell you this. The love that Jesus is talking about here in our text this morning was never conditioned upon the worthiness of its object, but rather upon the worthiness of its source. And when you withhold love from someone, What you're doing is you're saying that you have a better grasp on what it means than God himself. Please do not fall into that kind of self-deception. We're going to invite our prayer team to come down. And in just a few moments after I finish praying, there's going to be an opportunity for you to do something about this in your life. Please don't pass up this opportunity to rise from your seat, to take a step, to come down with these people here and and find someone to pray with you, to come alongside of you. But more than that, it's just an opportunity for you to express, I'm ready to change. 
This is not about how I feel. God, I repent of that. This is about how I want to obey you. I want to submit to you. I want to humble myself. And I'm going to step out and I'm going to show that I can overcome my own inhibitions and begin obeying Christ in this way. Father, I just pray that you will help each and every one of us here to truly love others. I pray that this body of believers will be characterized, will be seen, will be distinct and known by our practical love that is patterned after Christ and empowered by his love for us. May that be the tone and culture of what you're accomplishing among us. And I pray that even now as you are examining our hearts, that you are looking into our lives and you are revealing our thoughts, that you might cause those things in our lives that need refinement to surface up and that we might then receive that conviction as a gift from you and respond to you, our rabbi, our master, our leader, our Lord. We pray all this that as we obey there would be more lost people that would see this love and be drawn toward it and be saved. That you would mature all of us in a body. We'd be building ourselves up in love in this way. And that you would multiply more worshipers to exalt the name of the one in whom we pray. Amen.